Good evening. Welcome. I'm Tina Rasmussen. And I'm Stephen Snyder. Can you hear our mics? Okay, good. We are very excited to be here with all of you and um, really wanted to start by offering our, our gratitude to be here. It's such a, uh, an honor, really, and um, we really want to thank you for allowing us to extend our own practice in this way. Uh, through teaching the Dharma. It's very different to teach it than to be a yogi. And um, so we are very grateful to be here and for all of you being here as well. We also want to express our gratitude to the Sayadaw for teaching us the Buddhist practice and path and for um, helping us with our book, which hopefully most of you have had a chance to look at and being so supportive and the process of doing that and for asking us to be here for these, this first week with all of you to help uh, kick off this retreat. So it's really quite a, a pleasure to be here. We wanted to say a few words about, um, about how we offer teachings. And uh, first of all, you'll notice we both have microphones. So we don't just one of us talk for the whole evening. We actually it's more of a conversation, and so if, if one of us says something and the other one adds in or jumps into that, that's really just our style of uh, offering you the best of what we both have to teach together. And so that's, that's part of how we offer the teachings. In thinking about this retreat and what we could best offer you, especially given that this is the first, first week in the beginning of a retreat, there's a lot we, we could have offered based on our own experience. What we really wanted to focus um, the practice on the beginning stages of the practice. And so when the Sayadaw laid out the whole path of practice, we'll really be focusing on the first parts and specifically within the jhana practice. And so that's mainly what we'll be talking about for the next four nights. We do want to say that we are not uh, historians or scholars. We're really offering what we, what we experienced directly in doing this practice of the Buddha as we learned it from the Venerable Pak Sayadaw. And so if we make any historical or scholarly errors, please forgive us. Um, that isn't really our focused expertise, but we, we do have to offer our experience of doing this practice as practitioners. And so that's really what we're offering you. You have many learned monks here who can answer more um, scholarly or theoretical questions throughout all the rest of this retreat. We will have a Q&A at the end if there's time for that. We are hoping that we'll end by 9 or at the latest 8 or 8.15 each night. So uh, that's a little bit about the format. So in, in really thinking about and considering what is compelling about this practice, you all have come here for either one month, two months, three months, four months. It's a big commitment. And clearly, all of you have found something very compelling about it to make that level of commitment. And all of you are experienced practitioners as well. And so clearly, there's something very compelling about this practice. And for us, this is a question we, we still consider and, um, and, are mo and are moved by. Because we came from other practices. Stephen did Zen for many years. I did a lot of Vipassana practice in the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw. And we've both done uh, Tibetan practice as well. And when we studied with the Venerable Pauk Sayadaw, and then afterwards, we spent a lot of time really considering how did this fit into our whole range of Buddhist meditation practice. And the more we considered that, the more compelling the jhana practice in particular became. And uh, one of the main reasons is the Buddha himself. And we're going to talk about this more on the last night that we're here. But if you look at his life, 
and think of him as a role model, which of course we do. He, as we all know, he left the palace and went out looking for the wisest people of his day, the renunciates, and found two teachers of the time who taught him the jhana practice. One of them taught him the first through seventh and one taught the eighth jhana. And then he went on to do the vipassana practice, which really uproots the wrong view. But that was a part of his initial practice, as we all know. But it didn't stop there. That wasn't his last encounter with the jhana practice. He not only taught the jhanas, almost every time that he talks about right concentration, he's talking about the jhanas in the suttas. It's very consistent, and there's hundreds and hundreds of references to the jhana practice. But what we found even more compelling is that he continued to actually practice the jhanas himself, even after full enlightenment, even after decades of teaching other meditators, uh, the whole range of the Buddhist path, he continued to practice the jhanas himself. And even more compelling was that at the moment of his death, he did the jhana practice. This was the last and final act of the Buddha's life, was to undertake the jhana practice. And then he passed. And so we keep coming back to ourselves saying, why did he do that? And of course, we can't know the answer. But it is very compelling in terms of him and all of the many practices that he knew and taught and had to choose from. To have done that as the final act of his life is a very compelling um, question. And so for us, this has been a big part of what is compelling about this practice. The, um, all of Buddhism starts with sila. And of course, the Saito talked about sila last night. And sila, uh, one of the translations that we like is wholesomeness. And it's, uh, the Saito talked about the taking of precepts as the, uh, the way to cultivate sila. And I also wanted to just mention about what we're, there's a way that we frame it also, which is that there's uh, an inner wholesomeness that's really helpful in this practice. And that's really the kind of wholesomeness of avoiding and staying away from the self-judgments and the self-criticisms when we're on the object, on the breath, knowing the sensation of movement of breath and when that goes away, when the, when the mind comes in, thinking comes in. There's a lot of room for us to be really critical, to be comparing ourselves to others. And that's really more what I'm talking about. And we like the... Uh, a statement that Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters have used for Sila, which is living in harmony without regret. And again, the application here is there's less to come into meditation, there's less to come into your meditative experience of being with the, the, uh, the Anapanasati meditation if uh, there isn't things to be feeling regret about. So during the retreat, it's a good way to just cultivate a kind of inner and personal sila. This practice is, uh, the jhana practice, is, of course, a samatha practice. And it really is, a, uh, the purpose of it is really a purification of mind. It really allows for uh, a unification, collection of mind. But also there is something about the access concentration, absorption concentration, that really allows the mind stream to to purify, and that really is uh, an essential part of the practice. And even at this point, even wherever you are in your practice, the purification of mind is already engaging. When, when you're taken off the object and you return back to it, there's a purification there. When you turn away from the things that are distracting you and trying to grab a hold of you, there's a purification there. So it's already engaging, and to really hold it in that way helps to really see the practice and not have a lot of, uh, a lot of self-criticism, particularly when, when that's lost sight of. And, of course, the other aspect of the practice that the Saito talked about last night is the Vipassana, which is the, really the seeing uh, phenomenon as they truly are. Of course, purification of view is a big portion of the Vipassana. Now, the jhana practice overall is... Uh, again, as I said, is part of the samatha and really contributes to the purification of mind, which is uh, beneficial when one moves into the other portion of the practice, the vipassana practice. As the Saito talked about last night, 
the 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 uh, cusp is we could say is when the kalapas begin to be analyzed, and really having that kind of real purified jhana energy, the bright jhana energy to do that is really quite essential. Um, we both have been to see the kalapas, to see the subatomic particles, but to see them without that jhana energy really uh, at least strikes me as being really challenging to, to do the proper analysis. So to us, the, the jhana practice is a really important practice for the vipassana as well. The basic practice, I'm just going to read uh, the Anapanasati meditation instruction that we have in our book. Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight, your shoulder blades relaxed down your back towards the floor, and your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and upper lip, what we're calling the anapana spot. Know the sensation of the movement of breath as it passes the anapana spot on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath at the anapana spot, gently return it without judgment or self-criticism. One method of concentrating awareness is to count breaths. The Saidao suggests counting from one to eight and back down from eight to one, with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, in a single breath, excuse me, for example, a single in-breath and out-breath is one. Once awareness begins collecting, you can drop the counting if you like. Another method to concentrate awareness is to notice the length of the breath, long or short. This is not an evaluation by the mind, but an aware knowing. It is also not noting, as in associating a word to the knowing. Simply upon the in-breath, one knows whether it is long or short. On the out-breath, one knows whether it is long or short. As with counting, this can be dropped once concentration develops. And it's important also to remember that the counting and the long or short are just helpers. When, when the stability is reached with the object, those are let go of. Those, it's important not to take those as the object. Uh, and the mind is so quick to try and do that that it's really worth paying attention to that. Also, with the, the spot where the breath is crossing, which is between the nostrils and the upper lip, what we're calling the anapana spot, uh, it's, not, it's not the skin. It's really a space that's right above the skin where the, the breath is passing. And one of the metaphors that we use for this is it's like the toll taker on a bridge. They're waiting for each car to pass, and they're, of course, collecting the toll. But they don't leave the toll booth and get in each car and follow the, you know, drive off in the car, nor do they get out in the lane and start looking for cars. So with this, we don't follow the breath into the body or we don't fall away from the body. We stay right with the awareness attention right on the Anapana spot and notice and know the breath as it's passing. It's very important with this practice to do the best you can to put aside the other practices that you know. All of you come with extensive experience, and it's very easy for all of us to reach into our meditative toolkit when we have a certain problem arise to know, oh, I've got pain in my knee, I'm going to use this particular strategy. In this practice, all of that is, is the purification of mind. So if there's uh, issues coming up, if there's hindrances coming up, those are allowed to come up and pass away. And that's part of the purification. It's the turning away. It's the cultivating the disinterest, <coughs> cultivating the disinterest in these objects and ideas that are coming up. It's also in terms of what this practice isn't is, and putting aside what we know, it's really important, and this came up a number of times in the interviews today, to put aside what we know of other jhana practices because some of you have come with other experience and uh, that can actually get in the way when doing this practice. So, of course, it's an individual decision, but if you are coming with that experience, I'd really encourage you, we both would encourage you to really take this practice fresh and start with beginner's mind. And one of the main practices that people, most people here are coming with is, of course, the mindfulness practice. Uh, 
and in the West, this has been, the predominant practice has been mindfulness in the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw. And so we come with a whole language and a whole uh, history of doing that practice extensively that I think it's important, and we will be talking throughout these four nights about differences in the practice and where, where there are similarities and what may be helpful to put aside from that. A few of these things, one of the first is, is actually the word mindfulness. And the word mindfulness, its purest meaning is really just paying attention to whatever the object is. But in the West, because we've come to almost refer to the insight practice as taught in the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw, which the Forest Refuge and IMS were authorized in that tradition, we sometimes even call it the mindfulness practice. And so with that practice, the object of awareness is the present moment. And so if in this practice one hears, be mindful, it could be very easy to think, say, during walking meditation, that the attention would now go to the object of the lifting and the moving and the placing of the feet. And in this practice, the word mindfulness, it still means to be mindful of your object. It's just that the difference is your object is always the breath at the Anapana spot, no matter what you're doing. And so this is another difference that, say, in walking meditation, a number of you asked about this today, do I then focus on the movement of the walking? And the answer is no. You stay with your object, which is the Anapanasati meditation, really from the minute you wake up in the morning until you fall asleep at night. That is, that is theoretically your only object all the time throughout the day. And so that is a big difference in the two practices. When the Sayadaw says focus here, you know, that's sort of the shorthand for stay with that object all the time. That's really the, the main instruction with the Anapanasati practice. And then it's say that you were to go to another object later, it would be the same thing. Because in the Samatha, we are taking one object to the exclusion of everything else. And that's really where the unification of mind is possible. Another uh, difference in terminology is just the, the term anapanasati, because we may have done mindfulness of breathing before, but in other traditions, it may be taught at the belly, it may be taught that whatever is predominant would be the main object. And in this practice, it's really crucial to know the breath at the anapana spot, and this will become more apparent tomorrow if, if you haven't already read about this. But it's pretty much guaranteed if you use the belly or the chest or some other location of knowing the breath as your object that jhana as presented here in the Buddha's teaching won't arise. So it's, it's a really important distinction to make as soon as possible. And if it takes a little bit of um, new, developing a new habit because some of you, if you've been knowing the breath of the belly for many years, it may take a few days to have the anapana spot become your, the location for that knowing of the breath. Another difference is noting. And in this practice, we don't do noting ever. The only time you might come close to noting something would be if you were counting, because it's pretty hard to notice a number that you're really creating as a device to keep the awareness on your object without the word one or two or three. But even when, say, one is doing long and short, there's really no need to add a word to that. So this is another place where many of us have used noting as a habit and it really doesn't help with this because that isn't your object. And you don't really need to note, as in creating a word, to know your object, which again is, is the breath at the Anapana spot. So those are some of the differences between this and the mindfulness practice that we have practiced, many of us have practiced. So what is concentration then? 
And there's many translations for the word concentration um, in Pali. And one of the ones that I like, Gil Franz still uses this, is collecting. And we really think of it as unification of mind. We have, unfortunately, in the West, because the word concentration is a word we use in everyday language, many of us, if not all of us, have associations with it that go back a long time. Even as children, we may have been told, concentrate on your homework, or you know, if we're driving, oh, I need to concentrate. And if you use the word in those kinds of examples, there's a real sense of striving, of efforting, of having to control something. And it's kind of tight and tense. And we see that a lot with people where if that is how concentration is understood, there's a natural tendency for the practice to get very, very tense and tight as opposed to really understanding concentration as a natural faculty of the mind that's inherent, that we all use all the time, every time that we are focusing on something. And in this practice, because we're spending many, many hours focusing on one object to the exclusion of everything else, the mind naturally starts to unify, and the concentration starts to become more and more apparent. And so there's a different way of holding it, seeing it as a natural faculty of the mind that's being cultivated, rather than something that I have to go get that's going to take a lot of effort to go somewhere and get it. There are three kinds of concentration then, and I'd like to talk about all three so that you can see the difference and also see how this may relate to a moment to, to the mindfulness practice. And I like to use the analogy of a flashlight for this. And we have a number of these camping flashlights at home. That this, idea, this idea I will know it as a torch. A torch, yeah, okay. So these flashlights are you know, small, and if you lift it up, it turns into a lantern. And so when it's in lantern mode, it's basically shining everywhere, and the handle has now become like a lantern. And this is somewhat similar to momentary concentration because it's going broadly in many directions and is really falling on whatever it happens to land on. And then if you push the flashlight in and the light is coming out of one end of the flashlight, but in a broad beam, that's more like access concentration, where it is being focused in a certain direction, but it's still wider. And then if you turn one of these flashlights, the beam becomes very narrow and laser-like. And that would be more like absorption. So it's not an exact metaphor, but it at least gives you a sense of the three kinds. Momentary concentration, then. I'll talk about this. There are two different kinds of objects. And the Sayadaw was talking last night about the four elements versus the Anapanasati. So I'll just use those as examples. But if you were doing, say, four elements, this is a momentary concentration practice where your object is changing all the time. And the same thing with the Mahasi-style mindfulness practice. That is a momentary concentration practice where really the present moment is what's stable. Your awareness is on the present moment, but the contents might be changing. So for example, in the mindfulness, I might be aware of hearing my voice, and now I can feel my fingers touching my leg, and now I can feel myself breathing. So those would be three different contents of the object of the present moment. So the, the, uh, the momentary concentration, the object is really changing all the time. Whereas with the Anapanasati and the jhana practice and all of the objects used there, the object doesn't change, it's stable. So within the two of these, really you could almost call it um, preparatory concentration when you're doing leading to the jhanas practice because it's really preparing you for the other stages of concentration. Whereas with moment, the momentary object, the momentary concentration will be happening for a good portion of that practice. Then going to access concentration, if we are to look at, say, the mindfulness practice or the four elements, there is the possibility of that practice progressing to access concentration, even though the object is momentary. 
With the jhana practice, because the object is stable, the excess concentration can be cultivated in some ways more easily because the object isn't changing all the time. Of course, there's hindrances, but um, in both of these cases, access concentration can arise. With the jhanas, sometimes it's called neighborhood concentration because it is in the neighborhood of the jhanas, but it isn't actually a jhana absorption. And with access concentration, regardless of what type of meditation practice you're doing, whether it's a momentary object or whether it's a stable object, the jhana factors are arising. This is one of the characteristics of access concentration, is that the jhana factors are arising and the hindrances are dropping. And so this is how one of the ways of knowing that access concentration is, is coming up. Also, stability with the object over longer and longer periods and continuity as you're going from sitting to standing to walking to eating and other things. So this is access concentration. And then in the last stage, absorption concentration, that is not available with a momentary concentration object. So absorption concentration will never arise using the four elements meditation or using the mindfulness practice because the object is changing. And so an absorption can't arise with an object that is changing. With the jhana practice, actually the word jhana is sometimes translated as absorption. So uh, there is a real correlation there between the two. It's really full absorption that is a full jhana, uh, if you want to really look at what the term means. It's really referring to full absorption. And it's very easy to confuse access and absorption concentration because for, for somebody who hasn't experienced the difference between the two, access concentration can be very different from the normal state of awareness or even from meditation that, that isn't access concentration because the jhana factors are arising and the hindrances have dropped. So it can be very, very pleasant and it's easy to think that maybe access concentration is absorption. And that's where working with a teacher can be really helpful. In absorption, though, there is a sense of really being pulled into the object. And during the absorption, the awareness is of the object only. That is really the only awareness that's happening. If there's thinking, if there's checking jhana factors, if there's uh, any of that happening, that is not an absorption. So there, there is a distinct difference, but sometimes the, the mind stream can be so, um, can be coming and going so quickly that it can be different, difficult to tell the difference. One of the, one of the ways that the meditator can feel the difference is really in uh, the sense of purification, and there's an intensity to a full absorption that can be very different from access concentration. And I was looking at this uh, a definition that I really enjoyed um, the other day from Bhante G about the word jhana, and he traces it back to Buddhaghosa, who traced it back to the Pali word jhana, which came from the Sanskrit word dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A. Uh, and then he also relates to a verb that, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, jayati, which means to think or meditate, but also another verb called japeti, which means to burn up. And I really like that because he says here, it burns up opposing states, thus it is jhana. And so that, to me, really is the difference between full jhana absorption and access concentration. Sometimes we get asked, why, why bother to actually <coughs> cultivate full jhana absorption? Why, why not just go with access concentration? And of course, you know, every meditator has their own path and needs to decide these things for themselves. But there is a burning up that's distinctly different with a full absorption than with access concentration. What we'd like to do now then is refer to the practice chart that you got hopefully on the way in. 
And this is really, if you, last night when the Haida went through the full practice chart, this chart really just focuses on the samatha portion of the path. And again, this is in our book, and we we have assumed that since the Saido asked all of you to read our book before coming, that you have. So most of our talks won't be, won't be um, restating what is in there. We're trying to add to that. But this is from there and has been approved by the Saido. And so to give you a sense of, of the Samatha practice in a little bit more detail, and this is what we completed and are authorized to teach, is up to the point where one crosses over into vipassana, which is the analysis of the rupakalapas. That is technically the beginning of vipassana, as taught in the Buddhist path and as presented here on this retreat. So if you look at the bottom left corner, it says start here. In most cases. In most cases, not in all cases, as you heard last night, because there will be cases where uh, yogis will be working with the Sayadaw or Ujjagara and or other teachers and might start with four elements. But I'm going to start actually and go through using the Anapanasati just because that is the, the most common way and that's where you all are starting this week with the Anapanasati. So the Anapana practice starts... And tomorrow, we'll actually be talking in some detail about the terrain from the first set, which you've all done, of course, on this retreat, up to first jhana, because there's a lot of very fine detail in that territory. So I won't go into all the details of that now, but just know that there are many different stages where the access concentration arises, the jhana factors get stronger, the nimitta appears, and other things happen that then, if the jhanas arise, will then pull one into the first jhana. And as much as we might like to, we, we can't make a jhana when one is a beginning meditator. We can't decide one day we're going to sit down and just have a jhana arise. We'll actually be talking about this on Friday. So at some later point, when the jhana masters have been completed, the meditator can go into the jhana at will. But for this first phase, it's really uh, the cohering of the mind. That's really what is doing it is when the mind is unified and the purification of mind is strong enough, that's when the jhanas will start arising. So the first jhana, second jhana, third and fourth, the little circles there, J1, 2, 3, and 4, that would be the first part of the progression with the anapanasati. And here, different jhana factors start dropping as one progresses. So there are five jhana factors that we'll go over tomorrow that arise in before the first jhana and become very strong and then are present in the first jhana. And then gradually, those factors start dropping away as one progresses up to the fourth jhana until only one of the original factors is remaining and then a second jhana factor comes in. And so these are form jhanas. And it's really, there's an interesting difference between the, the lower jhanas and the upper jhanas, as they're sometimes referred to. The form jhanas, we're really working with objects that are based in materiality. And so even if you think about the breath, and you could see the breath as a concept, which would be mentality, but as you feel the breath, that is based in, in form. And so the Anapana practice is starting with a form object. And these form jhanas are um, based on that object. In that series, then, also, there are jhana masteries. There are five jhana masteries, one of which is a time duration. And uh, the Saida will often have people do a two- or three- or four-hour mastery and then a number of days uh, to really make sure that a jhana is, is strong and solid before moving on because if one moves on too quickly, it's very easy for the concentration to wane. And so this is part of the jhana masteries. There are five of them. I won't go through all of them now. 
But those jhana masteries really give a tremendous stability to the practice so that one can, when the masteries are completed, one can enter, one can exit, one can go to that jhana at will, which becomes very useful as the practice progresses. Then the next practice is 32 body parts, which is a very traditional practice of the Buddha. It really cultivates a lot of non-attachment to the body. And also many of the kasina colors are found in doing the, the body parts meditation, which I'll go through those in a minute. Then once that's completed, the skeleton is, is one of the 32 body parts. And one works with the skeleton meditation. And at some point then, when that practice is complete, the white of the skeleton is used to take up white kasina. And so here you're, you're using the anapanasati practice as a base, but then going to these other practices as a bridge to the kasinas. And for, and and, and for those that, that don't know, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, for those that don't know, the casina is usually described as a disc-like object that is uh, generally a color, or as Tina will describe, it also can be one of the four elements, and that's, that's what's visually seen and then is, uh, be- can become the object of meditation and can also lead to, to jhana. Right, so this is, it's produced in the mind, and after white casina, then there are ten casinas that are taken as objects, white Nila, which, as the side I was saying last night, is, I don't know if it can't be translated right, or if we maybe don't have a word for it, but it's kind of a blue, black, green, blue, black, purple, brown sort of color. So <laughs> technically, it's the color of bile. So um, <laughs> For those that were wondering. For when you're doing the 32 body parts. So it's, it actually is a fairly easy color to picture once the practice goes there. Yellow red, earth, water, fire, wind, light, and space. So you can see the first four are colors, and all of those colors are found in the body. Red is found in blood, yellow is found in urine. And so it probably was very convenient for monastics back in the day of the Buddha sitting under trees that they always knew they could find these colors, even if flowers weren't blooming around them of those colors and other things. We're, of course, making this up as why those colors are used, but it's, it is a very um, handy way of doing the practice because once you've done the 32 body parts, those colors are easily accessible. And if not, one can always look outside and find a flower or something in nature And then as one is moving around in the world, one of the things we found was that every time we saw that color, it would trigger that state. And so the world around you becomes really a trigger for that, that, um, the concentration to arise. It's really quite beautiful. And then we go on to the four elements, which are earth, water, fire, and wind. And those are seen and you can imagine taking wind as an object you would see. But there are ways of doing this that are very skillful. If you look through a tree and see it moving, there is a way that there can be a visual or even a a sensation of wind. And then light and space. So if if you can see, as you go through those 10, they get more and more refined as objects. You... By the time you're up to space as an object that is visual and then it extends to everywhere in doing the casinos, it's a very refined object, but it is still materiality. And so then one will do uh, all of these to mastery as well, all the way up through the fourth jhana. So there are many, many hours spent doing all the casinas up through all of the, all of the four jhanas. Yeah, I was just going to emphasize that. If you think about each of these, that each one, for example, white, is done in the casina through the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, each one to mastery. So you're talking two, three, or four hours uninterrupted in that jhana with that casina. So by the time all those casinas are done in the, in the first four jhanas, there's an incredible amount of mastery and ability to get in there and uh, when, when at will. Is... Yeah, the, the, the laser really starts um, showing at that point. And then the move is made to the immaterial jhanas, also called the formless realms. And it, the Buddha often talked about these as actual realms. And so there's a real qualitative difference between a jhana absorption and an immaterial jhana, which is a formless realm 
of where awareness can be that isn't part of form. And uh, the objects here are also very different. And in the, the formless jhanas, the only two jhana factors that are present are uh, one-pointedness and equanimity. And so the jhana factors aren't changing. So in the lower, in the form jhanas, there's a real difference because there's a change in the jhana factors, whereas when you get into the immaterial jhanas, that becomes stable, and it's really the object that is uh, determining the, the sort of texture of that jhana. And then one takes the earth casina and starts either seeing holes in it or around the edges, it starts breaking up, and then space is seen through the earth casina, and that's how the fifth jhana arises, which is the base of boundless space. And um, so in that jhana, the object is the base. The, the jhana is called the base of boundless space. I won't get into what all the objects are because it gets pretty technical there. And then the sixth jhana is the base of boundless consciousness. The seventh is the base of nothingness. And the eighth is the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And the, these words may not mean very much to you right now, but I think what's, what's helpful um, to consider, and in our experience of the practice, it's actually, there's a real profundity to it that goes way beyond just developing concentration and serenity. These are actually realms that go all the way up. If you think of something taking an object that is neither perception nor non-perception. What is that? It's a non-dual object. The mind can't grasp that object. There's no way that thinking can hold that object. And so it's a direct visceral experience of awareness without thinking and with an object that's so subtle that it's, it's completely, it's neither perception nor non-perception nor neither nor both. And yet somehow the mind can be aware of that. And this is really the first place where, where consciousness comes out of the unconditioned into something that is non-dual and then comes down into nothing, which we really think of as no-thingness. It's not really nothing, but there, there's just no object there. And then from there comes the consciousness from which materiality ultimately emerges and then in the fifth jhana, space emerges from the consciousness. And from that, all form comes right down through the fourth, third, second, first jhana, right to your own breath. And so there's a real profundity of this practice that for the meditator, there's a visceral knowing of that manifestation from the formless down into the form found in your very breath that you're breathing every minute. And I, I really can't, you know, there's, there gets to be a point where you can't really describe it, but there is a profundity beyond just developing concentration and serenity in this practice. I think also, just if I can jump in for a second, with, with these upper jhanas, there really is a kind of purification that's really outside concept. It's really so refined, and it's so intense at the same time that it's really challenging initially to even stay in these jhanas for very long, because it's just, they're so, they're so pure, and the mind stream that we bring to it is, that doesn't match it yet. So it takes a while for this to really develop so really, when, when, when these are finished, and of course, uh, Tina's going to get into the casinos on that too, there's just an, an amazing amount of purification of mind that really is dramatically life-changing, is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason why this practice is called purification of mind. And the, the sense in really any of the jhanas, but as they get more and more and more subtle and refined, it's not like I'm in a jhana. That isn't how it's experienced. It's really an experience of the practice doing you. And so there, there is a really profound cultivation of not, of, we call it the thinning of the me. Um, so take that for what it's worth. But there, the me doesn't go into an absorption. And that's where I think there, there is a, a purification 
uh, of that sense of identity that uh, is very, very profound. It's that sense of self that just right. really gets thinner and thinner and thinner. So then, again, one goes through all the casinas, that all except space, because you can't use the space casino when you have the fifth jhana, which is the base of boundless space. So it's a different sequence. It starts with earth, then goes to water, fire, wind, nila, red, yellow, white, and then light is the last one. So you can imagine the subtlety of using light casino as a base to get into the, the um, base of neither perception nor non-perception. It's pretty pretty subtle. Then when those practices are completed, one goes on to the four sublime abidings. And we know those as the Brahma Viharas in the West. The practice is very similar to what we do, except that one will continue to use usually the Anapanasati or the white kasina as your base throughout the day. And as your base, meaning, meaning your base meditation. Your base object, because you are, you, if mm-hmm. you do all eight jhanas, you will keep those, that practice going one sitting a day to really keep that concentration laser-like. And so the four sublime abidings, different ones, there are different levels of jhana possible, and so one will do that practice much as we do it in the West. And then the last practice here before we get on to four elements is the protective meditations. And we don't do these much in the West other than metta. There's actually four protective meditations. The first is metta. And the other three are, as the Saito said last night, the recollection of the Buddha, the recollection of death, and the recollection of foulness. And I really found these practices to be very useful. And they're called protective meditations because they they really do serve to protect one as they go into the vipassana, which can be so uprooting and have such a dramatic effect on one's sense of reality. And these become a protection. And I just, I found them really, um, I can see why the Buddha designed it this way. Because in the, of course, in the metta, there is loving kindness that can help us purify our relationships with others, have kindness towards ourselves if maybe things are, are um, getting difficult. And the recollection of the Buddha can give us an inspiration. If we think we can't go on or if we start having doubt, we can know that the Buddha did this and has many generations of Buddhists have done this practice and to be inspired by that. Could I make one correction? I think it's actually foulness meditation rather than recollection of foulness. Okay. Thanks. So, slight correction there. (laughs) Yeah, so the foulness, we'll go on to that, is the corpse meditation. And again, we don't do that much in the West, but there is a real sense of detachment from the body in doing that practice. And so, again, if you're on a long retreat and start finding desire coming up or things like that, the foulness meditation can really remind us that we aren't the body and to not be overly attached. And lastly, the, uh, the recollection of death helps us to be motivated. If we're feeling like maybe the, our energy is waning or we aren't as enthusiastic to know that we could die tomorrow, and do we really want to die without having completed the Buddhist path or making as much progress as we could. So those are the, the protective meditations. And then the practice goes on to four elements, which starts out in the samatha. And the, the Saito talked about that some last night. There's the four elements, which we already described, earth, water, fire, and wind. And this is then a momentary concentration practice. So so we're leaving the, the stationary objects and going to an object that is changing. So one is cycling. We won't get into the details of the practice now, but one is cycling through the four elements as they are known in the body in a rapid succession. And as those become more and more coherent, then you can see the crystal body forms. And again, the site I was describing this some last night, which the body looks like a block of ice, And then if the access concentration gets high enough, that breaks apart, and one can perceive directly the subatomic particles internally and even sometimes externally that make up the body. And and then when one analyzes one of those subatomic particles, that is the beginning of the Vipassana. And that's where 
our book and our teaching ends because that was what we completed. But what we will say, and we both got up to that point, that the even just the discerning, the seeing of the kalapas is really a profound, profoundly um, changing experience. Because it's, it's one thing to know that scientists can see everything as subatomic particles. But to see and know and experience your own body as nothing but subatomic particles that are arising and passing and moving is creates a level of detachment that is very hard to come by other than experientially. Knowing it as a concept isn't the same as actually experiencing that that's what all of materiality is. And so here, this is really just focusing on materiality, but uh, then the next stage would be analyzing those kalapas, and this is where I, we don't know how you could do that without a really laser-like concentration. I know that it is, it is possible and people have done it, but this is where the cultivation of that really powerful concentration becomes such a tremendous asset as well as through the rest of the Vipassana practice because they move really fast. And to be able to analyze eight, nine, or 10 aspects of that kalapa takes a very powerful concentration. But that is really where one goes beyond concepts and seeing ultimate materiality and then, of course, progressing through the rest of the path. Anything to add? Nothing. <clears throat> so as we, as we said earlier, we, we aren't scholars or historians, um, but uh, we're happy to answer any questions you have at this time. Yeah, Jim. Uh, just in terms of the, um, the, the four elements, could you discuss what, I mean, you, you, used, you used each of the four elements as a casino before you actually do uh, the momentary concentration thing of four elements. And, and, uh, right, I, yeah, so you're wondering what's the difference. Yeah. Sure. In the casinas, really what is happening is there's an image of that element. So for example, when one is doing earth casino, the instruction will often be to go outside and find some dirt and make a circle and look at it. And then when the eyes are closed, if you can still see it, then you can start practicing earth casino or you can bring some dirt into your room. So it's really the visual uh, sense of that element is your object. It's not so much feeling it in your body or anything like that. It's, whereas in the four elements practice, one is working with aspects of earth. There are characteristics of earth, which I'll just read. Hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. So in the practice, you're looking for each one of those very, very specifically in your own body. So it has nothing to do with going out and looking at dirt. This is actually where in you are, the, are each of these, and you'll hold each characteristic until eventually you'll hold all the characteristics of earth. You can hold earth, earth element as one, feeling each distinct characteristic at the same time. In the casinas, correct. Right. Well, you're not you're not really elaborating quite that much in the casino. You're yeah, not. The four elements. It's the characteristics that Stephen just described. Yeah. Yeah, and it's initially finding them in your own body, and then eventually you'll find them externally. So it's it's seeing that all all of matter, all of form, is composed of four elements. Somebody else had a question. Sure. 
Yeah, we're actually, that's going to be a large part of the talk tomorrow. And then on, we're going to talk about striving on Friday. So <laughs> <laughs> The big topic. Yeah, well there's, well, there's basically, it's, you know, we all have a certain amount of disinterest right now. You know, what, what's happening in Washington, D.C.? You know, do we really care sitting right here? No. So there's ways that we understand disinterest, but it's really learning a, a kind of uh, non-attachment to our own story. So really, we have to just be with the object, and as things are coming up, we really have to develop a kind of a shrug, like, oh yeah, there's, there's that. We're not, we're not noticing that, but that's the attitude. Do you get that? Not quite? Yeah, so it's, yeah, and they, we don't want to go into the whole description, but it, it's, it's really what's being cultivated is, say, a hindrance comes up. For example, um, in a group we do, somebody talked about driving in traffic and getting cut off. Well, one could sit there for 10 minutes, you know, berating the other person and feeling angry and so on, or there could just be like, yeah, they cut me off, I had to slam on my brakes, I'm going to listen to my music now. And so that's the kind of disinterest. It comes from wisdom. And, you know, unfortunately, the Buddha was right that life has a lot of suffering, and our attention on it really makes it a lot worse. And so the, the disinterest is really cultivating um, our unwillingness to suffer. So, so it's about understanding. No, it's not helpful to go there on the back here instead of yeah. Right. dancing. Yeah. It's also a discipline. It's the discipline of returning again and again to the object. And, and what, what people often find in report is that, that that distraction, whether it's a hindrance or defilement, whatever it is, gets weaker each time that you come back to the object and you don't go there and you don't engage it and give it energy. So that's, that's really how this is designed, is for these things to lose energy to the point they just don't come up with any strength. Right. Every time we turn away, we're building that. Well, the object is, is the breath because it's mindfulness of breathing. So to be clear that when we talk about what in our language is the spot, that area, the breath is being known in that region. But it's not, it's the sensation of the breath there, but it's not, the, it's not like you're just keeping your object on a piece of skin. Do, do you want to say more? Yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's really that knowing it, the, the object, you know, this is the location, but it's important. We say it's not the skin because people will want to grab onto something. If, if they're counting, they want to make the numbers the object. If they're doing long and short, they want that to be the object. So we're just trying to say just stay, stay loose about it. Where th- That's where the awareness is, and that's where the breath is passing in and out. Again, it's like the toll-taker metaphor. You're in that booth. You know, and, and your object isn't really the booth. Your object is paying attention to cars going by. So it's bringing awareness to the breath passing. It's not the location specifically. But, but we're agreeing that we're going we're gonna to do it at that location. You're going to be in your booth and collect the toll from the drivers. Does so when sense? one knows that object, you might know the feeling of the breath moving there, um, things like that. But it's, the breath is actually the object. Is that clear? Okay. Jim? Uh, this is skipping back to what you said about not doing other practices. This kind of is really important to me to know. Uh, I, I didn't, but those of us, certainly myself included, who have strong aversion at times, strong aversion attacks where they're unexpected, uh, I have found the meta practice just enormously helpful over the years, and I do it. Well, some of this practice, too, is, is really, there's a, this is really a practice for people who are willing and able to be uh, meditators and spiritual adults. I mean, you're really, you're really being mature and choosing what you need to do. So 
you know, w what we'll tell you is what the instruction is, what the practice is. If you have something else that you specifically, uniquely need to do, you need to decide that. So it's not like we're going to tell you, or I don't think anyone else will tell you, don't do this, just do that. We're saying you, you need to turn away from this. And it's really more that people start using it as a strategy, their, their meditative knowledge as a strategy when they have hindrances come up or when they have defilements or they have pain or whatever. They, they start going in and using these things, and that's going away from the object. Because part of it is, again, staying with the object to the exclusion, you know, to turn away from the hindrance that's coming up. You know, it's probably better to just take the question up and interview, and since it's specific, and do it that way, if that's okay. That's fine. Great. I know there was a question over here. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, you, there's kind of two parts to the question that I'm hearing. One is about following the breath in, and the answer to that would be that you don't follow it in or out. So that, just, that one's fairly clear. The other one is that the breath is your object, and so if what you're noticing is sensation, then that's what you're noticing. The breath can be known in many ways. And as the breath gets more and more subtle, that may change over time. But if that is what you're knowing right now, that's great. And, you know, if it changes, you might want to ask in an interview about the specifics. But since that's kind of theoretical right now, what you're experiencing is fine in terms of knowing the breath as sensation. Okay. Anything else for tonight? Thank you.